Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ian Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Anna Polina Lee speaking about her book, Mandarin Brazil, Race, Representation, and Memory, published in 2018 by Stanford University Press. Anna Polina Lee is Assistant Professor of Luso-Brazilian Studies at Columbia University, where she researches and teaches on urbanism, migration, race, gender, literary, and cultural studies in 19th and 20th century Brazil. Reflecting the richness of the book, our conversation spans five centuries, two continents, and multiple genres ranging from novels and poetry to popular music and vaudeville theater. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ian Shen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Ana Polina Lee about her book, Mandarin Brazil, Race, Representation, and Memory. Ana is assistant professor at Columbia University, where she teaches in the Department of Latin American and Iberian Cultures. Ana, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're very excited to have you. Ana, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, Well, I am, as you mentioned, uh, currently assistant professor of Luso-Brazilian Studies at Columbia University. And people often ask me how it is that I got interested in Brazilian study and Brazilian cultures. And while my answer is often surprising, I tell people it's actually not that I became interested in it, but I was born into it. Um, I was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And so for me, Brazilian culture has always been very much part of who I am and my sense of um, just identity. So it was very natural for me to pursue Brazilian studies in uh, college and in my master's program at NYU and then in the doctoral program at the University of Southern California, where I studied comparative literature. And um, so one of the things that really impacted my decision to do graduate studies, to go back to graduate school, was back in 2004, 2005, when I was working in northeastern Brazil in during the presidency of Lula da Silva. He created a, a cistern program to alleviate some of the drought-stricken areas in the Northeast. So part of my work was to work with bricklayers and NGOs in water sanitation and programs. Um, and while I, was, while, while I was there, I was fresh out of college. I was, you know, bright-eyed and just wanted to understand better some of the conditions of rural Brazil. So I went to the Northeast. I, I stayed in Pernambuco for much of, the, of my work there. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to work with different communities, and a lot of the communities where I worked were actually um, driven by the sugar plantation economy. So many of the people who I was working with were still living on sugarcane plantations after many generations. Uh, There was one woman named Louisa, who I'll never forget. She was 90 years old, and she was born and raised in this sugarcane plantation. Her mother was a slave, she told me. Brazil, uh, just to remind everyone, abolished slavery in 1888. It was the last country in the hemispheric Americas to abolish slavery. happened almost at the dawn of the 20th century. So when we think about that history, it's actually incredibly present. And people who are alive now have a very direct relationship to it. It's not something that, you know, is, is distant. People have, you know, their parents or grandparents were directly affected by that history, and they still carry a lot of that uh, post-memory, that kind of trauma that comes with that. And not only that, but people are still living in conditions that are very similar. So the the people who are working on these sugarcane plantations, they were making about one U.S. dollar a day, you know. And so in my mind, not really knowing anything about um, in, in anything about that kind of history or social conditions... Uh, I, I decided to go back to graduate school to understand better these kinds of legacies of slavery and, and the way that very similar conditions continue today in the form of wage labor, but uh, it really becomes a kind of an, a continuing form of that 
racialized labor, but in in a in you know in a disguised form or reconfigured form. But the the structure of it is very much present today in our in our contemporary period. And so that was really what drove me to go back to graduates, to go back to school, to pursue a degree in um, in Brazilian studies and to better understand the various dimensions of this kind of continuing labor exploitation that exists today. I think one of the things that is fascinating to me hearing you, you talk about this background is um, uh, how you come to emphasize certain kinds of cultural productions and representations, especially in the book, right? Because one of the things that I think readers of the book and, and our listeners will be really impressed by as we, as we um, talk about the book uh, throughout this interview is just the range of different types of cultural productions from theater to popular music to poetry to, uh, to novels uh, to illustrations. Um, and yet, as you, as you said, you know, when you went back to, to graduate school in Brazilian studies, it sounds like you, you began with literature. Is that right? At USC? So how did you, how do you think about, um, this, uh, this dynamic between, you know, understanding the past and the historical grounding, uh, that, that you need to think about, uh, the legacies of slavery versus sort of your work as a, a person who works on cultural studies and studies, uh, literature and, and theater and, and all these other genres. Absolutely. I did do a, uh, as you mentioned, I studied uh, literature and cultural studies in graduate school. And I found that to be a really helpful and incredibly um, important way for understanding processes of racialization, which I developed significantly in the book, uh, which explores the political and cultural memory of racialization. And so um, while I, I was com- significantly impacted by my experience working in the sugar plantations and a drought relief in Brazil, um, I, I did return to do work in literary analyses. And I found that in the tools that I learned from literary theory and literary analysis have incredibly shaped the way I approach my my research and my um, and the writing of the book so it's driven um, by this desire to understand processes of racial formation and racialization as tied to new kinds of labor that emerged at the end of slavery and the transition to wage labor and so I very much um, was very inspired by the work of Lisa Lowe and how she uses this approach of using literary analysis and theory to understanding much more um, abstract understandings of racialization and, and its dynamic and relational processes. So there um, it became incredibly important for me to turn to people like Paul Gilroy and Joseph Roach, who who write about the Black Atlantic and the Circum Atlantic in formulating what I use in the book as a framing device, what I call circumoceanic memory, which is a framing mechanism and also a rhetorical strategy that attempts to decolonize and deconstruct through showing and connecting various modes of cultural production. And the my my analysis is this the production of Chineseness, which becomes a way of understanding the processes of racialization that produce an idea, a consolidated idea of Chineseness in, in these various um, time periods and spaces of, of connected to Brazilian nation building. Yeah, I found that that concept of circumoceanic memory to be hugely helpful in tying all of these different modes of representation together. I suppose one of the other questions I want to ask as kind of a general um, um, background to the book is also your uh, perception um, or impression of the state of the field as it comes to studies of Chinese racialization in the Americas. 
Because one of the things that you write about in the introduction is how these kinds of studies often focus on the United States or on Canada, so mostly North American histories of, of sinophobia, whereas, of course, you've chosen here to focus on Brazil while acknowledging that if we think about the history of Asian migration, of course, um, that's predominantly a Japanese story in, in Brazil. So how do you think about uh, the, the state of the field in terms of the history um, and, and cultural study of Chinese racialization in the Americas? I would start by saying that when I began this project, I found it incredibly difficult to do because it was one of those projects that it was very hard to situate within any field. So it wasn't exactly Latin American, and it wasn't exactly Asian American, and it wasn't exactly U.S., and it wasn't exactly Chinese. So just even in that kind of difficulty of trying to write about this topic, I often faced this challenge of where do I situate the study? And that brought me to an epistemic challenge of just how we organize knowledge, you know, how um, really the national framework is so powerful in constructions of academic fields. And it's really difficult to go beyond that at times when you're we're trying to, when I was trying to do this kind of work. And, and that was a constant kind of, um, you know, uh, obstacle for me. And so that's why I I really took to the task of thinking of how I could challenge these constructions of East and West and North and South, which really became central to my project. And at times that was, you know, a sense of, you know, how to write from this other space that doesn't necessarily fit into the organizing uh, frames that are very dominant in the U.S. Academy and even in the Brazil Academy too, which is really, you know, always so centered by nation, by area studies. And so I I wanted to think about um, how to how to analyze these circulations of capital, of labor, of, you know, things that are very much historical that that needed a, a language to talk about, but that would, if, you know, if I continue to look at the division, if I was to stay within my field or to pick a field, I wouldn't have been able to go beyond and see the, and follow the circulations. So instead I, I used another logic. I decided to follow the circulation of the cultural production. And in following that circulation, I could see a whole different kind of landscape that um, is absolutely embedded in these historical processes. And it sheds light onto a historiography of racial formation. And and then from there, it, it became very clear to me that these different images of, you know, racialized images of the Chinese in in Brazil, in Macau, in Portugal, in Cuba, in the United States, these really globally circulating images, they were very much connected and they were tied to this larger um, processes of trade, of travel, of commerce, of nation building. And so it, a whole different kind of conversation was emerged for me, a whole different kind of set of questions emerged for me when I started to, when I just flipped the script in in a sense of instead of beginning from, you know, a discipline or or an area, I just, I looked at the objects and I, I let the visual, the sonoric, the the this the sense of walking through a city to speak to me. And, and so that's when I, when I mean that uh, the circumoceanic for me is also a rhetorical strategy because it became a way for me to use prose and to use what I've learned in literary analysis and literary theory to write about the complexities of these interactions through showing, you know, through creating scenes. And in creating scenes, I, I hope to also create conversations and dialogues. And I very much imagined this book being used in, in the classroom and undergraduate and graduate classrooms and allowing for the these individual scenes to allow for conversations about the circumoceanic that, you know, instead of telling, I really wanted to 
show all of the different kinds of power dynamics of the different uh, layers of imperialisms that have created racialized and ethnicized and gendered identities to come out in that kind of experience of walking through a city, the experience of reading a text with multiple languages in your head, you know, straddling multiple contact zones and just um, to show, to show that and to have it be um, a dialogue, right? So a kind of a dialogic experience also in that kind of, um, in, through the writing of it. I am, um... I'm I'm dying to talk to you about some of these different genres that you've started to name, um, and so I think maybe what we'll do is um, I should note for for listeners that there are there are uh, uh, six chapters uh, in Mandarin Brazil, um, and uh, chapter one I, I think I'm actually going to to skip over, even though it gives really helpful background about some of the early ideas of China that are formed via porcelain export porcelain and the Chinoiserie trade, and also the racial hierarchy that are produced through Brazil's history of slavery. But I want to actually move us forward to chapter two, because we've started talking about some of these different ways of representing Chineseness and and the ways in which those representations are useful for Brazilian national identity and national projects. Um, And I think you begin to get into some of these, these genres in chapter two, which is titled Emancipation to Immigration. Um, and in, in this particular chapter, it's rich with illustrations uh, of, uh, of Chineseness in journals like uh, the Revista Illustrada. And you're going to have to, you will have to excuse my terrible pronunciation, uh, which is very much inflected by my. It's inflected by my uh, high school Spanish, which is, which is uh, embarrassing. Uh, but. Um, I wondered if we could start with with this first uh, genre of of uh, representations of the Chinese. Can you situate us in the historical period in which they arise, and and what do these illustrations tell us about how Brazilians understand Chineseness during this during this era? Absolutely. So this is a chapter about the gradual emancipation of slavery, the end of the 19th century in Brazil, and the turn to the global pressure to end slavery, and then the the turn to new kinds of labor. Because the, you know, the large agriculturalist slaveholding class was not about to give up the mass um, the immense sugar cane and coffee plantations that brought immense wealth to all of the people involved in in um, leading and being the, the owners of these spaces. So they were not going to give that up. And and so that's something to um, that's something that really drove the push for Chinese labor as a solution to this um, potential labor crisis, you know, the end of a slave labor and the need to continue that kind of labor, but in disguised form, since there was this global pressure to end slavery, so it had to be in a disguised form. And so the Chinese, the, the Chinese laborers or, you know, the so-called coolies, as they were derogatively called, um, they became a, a possible solution to that, um, to that time period, um, but at the same time, there was also a lot of other forms of immigration. You know, it wasn't just the Chinese. There were also many Europeans from Italy, Spain. There were also Middle Eastern immigrants coming from um, Syria, Lebanon. So there were a, a, a huge amount of um, immigration coming in, and at the same time, there was a also a social exclusion of people who were formerly slaves or liberated or born free. So there was this um, turn, complete neglect of that, you know, so people who were formerly enslaved became liberated and then they were completely excluded from entering into society, which uh, caused just, you know, up to today has caused this immense kind of, um, social death and exclusion that we can we can continue to see. Um, there were laws that, like the vagrant laws, that went after people who were unemployed. But people who were unemployed were unemployed because nobody wanted to hire them because of their skin color or their previous, you know, enslaved condition. So there were all of these negative, um, negative 
challenges and, and just um, kinds of obstacles that, that faced many people coming out of slavery. And so the Chinese were entering into this kind of landscape. And, and what chapter two does is, uh, and what I, I tried to do in all the chapters, is to show these different layers of complexity that wasn't just, you know, the latifundium uh, slaveholding class that wanted to continue that. But there was also the fact that there were coolie labor throughout the Americas, you know, indentured Chinese labor throughout the Americas, and the British were um, part of that. And then the United States, there was the gold mining, um, and then the question, the Chinese question that came out of that, as May Nai uh, writes about this idea of the coolie question or the Chinese question that becomes global. Um, and so there's so many layers of, um, of trying to understand where the Chinese fit in within this emerging Brazilian national consciousness, but also these globally circulating ideas of Chineseness. And also what was happening in China, right? That was also a question for me. What did Qing officials and what, how are they conceiving of this idea of Chineseness also? Because as I argued, it was really a, a time when these, this, the idea of Chinese was consolidating um, in, in the, for the late Qing, for many uh, late Qing statesmen. They started to think about China, Chinese as uh, as a, as this uh, race, you know, and they, they talk about this Chinese race, right? And what does that even mean? So they begin to think of these ideas after they visit Brazil. They go to Brazil. They see this organizing, you know, form of racial categories of slavery of of different. European immigrants, as I mentioned in one of my examples of diplomatic correspondences, um, Fu Yunlong, who writes about, he creates these different categories of, of, you know, these different races in Brazil that he just uh, creates. And he gives, he names the Chinese as a race, right? And so that is one of the, the, the first times that the, that China begins to think of itself as in, in this kind of global landscape and where it's going to fit in. And so you see the circulation of racial ideologies, of, nat- of nation building, and how they, are, they, they become globalized. They're moving around. You know, they don't have a particular origin, but what, what's important is that the contact is what creates them. And so they're moving, they're circulating, and, and they're influencing these um, larger ideas of nation building that become racialized and they they reconfigure colonial racial categories that determined also subjugated forms of labor and they reimagine them within these new kinds of national categories that are also racialized in the in the Americas and, and China develops its own idea of you know Chineseness that has to do with also creating a Chinese state. Right. And so that's what chapter two does. It shows these kinds of different debates happening around the construction of Chineseness. And it's the way it's, um, it also lets us think, think about also this global construction of race that's happening. As a, I have to say, as a, um, someone who works on Asian American history, I found it um, incredibly uh, interesting that the um, I don't think I, I hadn't known about sort of a more systematic effort uh, within the Qing government to investigate other places like Brazil as uh, almost colonial spots um, uh, in the same way that, you know, I understood from Ichiro Zuma's work that the Japanese government, you know, had sort of seen uh, uh, the North American West uh, as, as, a, uh, as a new frontier uh, for, for Japan, that the Chinese were doing the same. Um, and, you know, and as you said, you, you mentioned a couple of different officials. Um, and, and that may be a good segue to talk about chapter three, because the visit of one of these officials named Tong Jingxing um, actually prompts uh, theatrical uh, portrayals of, of Chineseness in Brazil. Uh, and chapter three, which is uh, titled Performing Yellow Face and Chinese Labor, you look at um, portrayals of Chineseness and Sino-Brazilian encounters in, um, again, 
excuse my butchering of, of, of Portuguese, um, teatro de revista or review performances. So how did these work maybe in comparison to the illustrations um, that appear and that you write about in, in chapter two? How are they similar and how are they different in terms of the depictions of Chinese uh, that are presented on stage? Uh, well, so the, the these performances of Yellow Faith in 19th century review theater um, or vaudeville, we can also call them that, they were very much in dialogue with the images circulating in the Hibisa Ilustrada, which showed this kind of larger abolitionist vocabulary, if you will, that was being constructed by various artists, writers, politicians, um, and and. What becomes evident here, which um, was not evident before, is that a lot of these major writers, you know, like Machado Jesse's, these very canonical, if you will, Brazilian authors, were very much engaged in this abolitionist work. And one of the ways that they would they were advocating for abolition was also to say that actually Chinese labor is not a good idea if we really want abolition because the Chinese in, in their writings became, um, you know, yellow labor became a figuration or symbolic of new forms of precarious labor. So it wasn't so much. So there's a a distinction between anti-Chinese and anti-coolie labor that comes out in their writings. So anti-Chinese wasn't always the same as anti-coolie. And coolie becomes a figuration of new forms of precarious labor that would substitute slave labor. And so sometimes this idea of anti-Chinese gets conflated with anti-coolie. But, you know, there's, there's these kinds of ambiguities in the writing. And so here in performing Yellow Face and, and Chinese Labor, we can see a lot of these debates happening on the stage, which shows a, a really rich part of 19th century Rio and, and how theater was so present, you know, in different in in people's lives that it became a place to deliberate citizenship. As Arturo Azevedo, one of the founders of the Chatro de Revista, one of the leading writers of the genre, he you know, thought of theater as a national institution, right? a place to deliberate citizenship. And theater goers were incredibly diverse. They were uh, different socioeconomic levels, all, all you know, different kinds of, um, a lot of Portuguese merchants. Um, so all, all you know, walks of life were part of this theater scene as as uh, constituted part of Rio's theater public. And so the fact that they were um, performing these ideas were al- was also a way of performing larger social, social issues, political issues. And the theater was often a place that critiqued um, contemporary politics. And it was a way to parody and satirize and, you know, to, to ridicule politicians. And so it became this very important um, carnivalesque space in a way where the, the social order became, you know, um, questioned, it became um, caricature, it became ways to, to really point a finger, you know, these critical fingers at society, but always with laughter always you know with this sharp humor and and that's what i think was really appealing to about the theater it would make these incredibly harsh observations but always with laughter so it kept people coming back kept people laughing and made people see you know different points of views different debates and so here we we have examples of um Various, like I show various examples of theater being used in this way. The I think the one the example that that stood out most to me um, is your discussion of a play called um, O Mandarin or the the Mandarin uh, in 1883. And and the part I want to pick up on because I think you you uh, expand on this point um, later on as well is that the way that the play depicts uh, Chinese gender and sexuality. As, as androgynous and as strange and therefore uh, unassimilable in, in Brazil or undesirable, at least, in, in Brazil. 
Um, this returns us back to the point of your, your speaking about anti-Kuli not being sometimes the same as anti-Chinese, which I think is an important distinction. In this particular case, what are some of the objections to Chinese gender and sexuality as they play out in this in this play called O Mandarin? Uh, that's a that's a really great observation. So the these these theater um, these reviews were really important also in the way that they were constructing ideas of gender and sexuality about the Chinese. And so just to contextualize it a little bit, the these ideas about the Chinese and in terms of gender and sexuality were very much tied to their ability as laborers and as a reproductive labor force. So the conversations about Chinese gender and sexuality are always tied to whether they will bring too many laborers, whether whether they will. So labor and reproduction become incredibly tied in these conversations about the construction of gender and sexuality. So will the Chinese bring too much uh, labor, bring a labor force, they will, you know, procreate to this, you know, and create a surplus of labor. But, and then there it gets tied to a fear about this so-called yellow race, right? Because at this time, Brazil was also very invested. Many politicians were very invested in the project of racial whitening, branqueamento, which is literally called whitening. There was this predominant belief that Brazilian modernity, Brazilian modernization, liberty, everything was also tied to its racial identity, this kind of idea of creating a whitening race. So through miscegenation, Brazil could become whiter. And, you know, so it would, the idea is that it was whiter because there was just a huge population and there was an idea that Brazil could become whiter in the likes of Europe, in the likes of these white liberal democracies, right? So the miscegenation was a critical discourse in Brazilian nation building. And here the Chinese enter into debates about miscegenation. Now, will the Chinese aid in the Brazilian whitening, racial whitening project? Well, in these plays and in the abolitionist journal, the debate is that, no, they are going to actually threaten the racial whitening project. And in a few examples, they show that the Chinese will actually yellow um, the population. So there's this fear that they would yellow the population. And that goes back to something that Joaquin Nabucco, a leading abolitionist, said against the Chinese. He said, the, the Chinese will not be good for Brazil because they will Mongolize Brazil in the way that African slaves Africanized um, Brazil. So, you know, there's this very much tied idea that the the Chinese were not going to be the good white liberal subjects that Brazilian politicians were hoping, hoping for. And that added to this atmosphere of, of sinophobia. And I think we'll return to that um, when we talk about the the, the last chapter, um, because you know, at the moment where a diasporic African identity or a mestizo nationalism becomes dominant uh, in in Brazil, you know, the question of miscegenation takes on a different uh, uh, significance. But before we do that, um, I would love to talk to you about chapters four and five, and I, I sort of want to talk about them in tandem. Um, because uh, as I read them, uh, there was a, a focus on literature, sort of going back to, to your wheelhouse, perhaps, if we can call it that. Um, different genres from poetry to novels uh, to uh, um, a genre that I don't think I've, I've encountered before called cronicas, uh, which you say sit between factual news reporting and fiction. So perhaps we can just sort out the genres and then we can maybe then get into the representations that appear. What, what, are, what are some of the different um, genres in which uh, Brazilian writers are, uh, are talking about Chineseness uh, during the, the late 19th century? Uh, well, the, the Brazilian writers who I, I chose... Um, they were writing. They were writing across genres. Machado de Assis was incredibly prolific. He wrote pretty much, you know, every genre: poetry, theater, chronicas. Um, he also used pseudonyms. He was an incredibly prolific writer. 
Um, and so, and Issa Jikiroiz, he, oh, Machado de Assis was also, uh, he was also, you know, a civil servant. So they were, they were straddling a lot of these different, different positions in society as, as literary intellectuals, as civil servants. In the case of Issa Jikiroiz, he was a diplomat. He went to, you know, he did a lot of missions for Portugal. He was also writing about, warning Brazil about um, accepting Chinese labor because of the risk of it becoming like um, the situation in Cuba, you know. And so, so they were writing across genres. And that's something to, that is very common for 19th century Brazilian literature that these writers and were also diplomats, they were writing across genres. So it wasn't, um, it was very natural just to see what else they were writing in, in different, in different genres. Um, what I, what I did find interesting was to match, for example, Machado Jesus's work um, in the ministry of agriculture and his work in um upholding the free womb law um, in that capacity, which, you know, it's also something to think about that the, these debates over liberty and freedom were being discussed in the Ministry of Agriculture, just to show that, again, that linkage between labor and reproduction, right? The, the, the gender and sexuality of the enslaved Black woman being debated in the Ministry of Agriculture. And in that same discourse gets placed onto Chinese sexuality and gender. You know, are the Chinese going to be a good reproductive and good labor force? So that that gets repeated throughout these works, and and it just shows a larger logic about that. But um, so what I did was I took the work that Machado. I looked at Machado Jesus's work as minister in the Ministry of Agriculture and looked at his per- literary production happening at that same time to see if there was some kind of connection between what he was seeing, you know, at that time. It was also the beginning, the attempt to begin a 10-year experimental Chinese labor um, importation scheme. There was also that. And so what he was doing um, in his literary works. And I found a lot of parallels. You know, in some cases, he was extremely explicit that, you know, and very anti-Chinese in, the, in you know, making fun of the accent, making fun of the, the way that, you know, these stereotypes, he was circulating these stereotypes. But he was also using, you know, pseudonames. He was also writing from the disguise of British officials. So there's this play also, you know, where is his voice? And because he, he disguises it in so many layers. But just matching what they were doing in their political lives, in their professional lives, in the, in the, as civil servants, to their work in literary production enabled me to make these connections much clearer. You know, they, he, he wasn't just, for example, he, was, he translated a series of um, Judith Gautier's poems, and she was the daughter of Théophile Gautier, who is a major figure of French Orientalism. However, I show that he, he's not just, you know, creating a new kind of French Orientalism in Brazilian literary production. He's actually very much talking about this larger concern of Chinese labor, of the labor crisis, of political crisis. And it's, it's, it becomes almost impossible to read that after, after seeing, you know, after putting the, the historical context in conversation with the, after reading the literary works within their historical context, it becomes almost difficult not to interpret it that way. And then so looking at his other works where he makes these mentions, for example, in Memorias Postumus de Cubas, he does this, he mentions very briefly the appearance of a Chinese barber and this Mandarin who pays for his services with pinches and sweets. And so that was a scene that I read many years ago, and I always thought it was so strange that that scene was even there. It didn't really make sense to me. But it did start to make sense once I put that piece into 
the larger picture of what he was writing about at that time. And suddenly that became a way to, you know, part of this other conversation that he was participating in, which was tied more to concerns about what abolition and nation building actually meant and the place of these new laborers in society and what they would do for um, Brazil as a nation trying to make itself known on this world stage. And it was looking at Europe and at the United States as these models of white liberalism that it could follow. I think it's important to note here for, for listeners that, um, you know, you, your, uh, your discussion of, of these particular literary works um, really plays off of um, Timothy Hampton's idea of diplomatic poetics, which I was not actually um, uh, familiar with. So perhaps you could just say a little bit about um, what that concept, how, how that uh, concept is, um, is active in, in your analysis of these different literary works. Timothy Hampton's, what he calls diplomatic poetics, was really helpful for me in thinking about the role that diplomats played and their works, the the work between diplomacy and literature. So as I mentioned, Isaj Kirois and a few other writers who I wrote about, they were also diplomats. And what Timothy Hampton does is he gives us a way to, to think about diplomatic poetics as um, as not mere representation, but he he says that diplomacy's authority is shaped by representation, whereby diplomatic authority is mere representation and where representation must claim whatever authority it can garner through negotiation instead of violence. And so the aim of diplomatic poetics is to mediate, negotiate, and arbitrate an alternative to the escalation of violence by prioritizing the function of representation. And so representation here becomes political, and the political can also become representation. And there's this very fantastic tension that Timothy Hampton creates for thinking about these, you know, political historical texts and aesthetic texts and their relationship to each other. So when we look at Isajikeroi's diplomatic works in conjunction with his literary works, there's so much overlap in the way that he writes about the Mandarin, for example, and the Cooley, for example. So Issa Chikirois was a diplomat, and he went to Cuba to um, assess the, the situation of the Chinese contract laborers who arrived there. And, you know, it's important to note that not all Chinese laborers were coolies, right? They were not all indentured servants. There were different conditions, and they had different statuses and and so but that kind of all becomes homogenized in the the concept of the coolie but so he went to cuba and there he he saw the what was happening and he went actually with this proposal for portugal to say that the the chinese coming from macau were actually portuguese he you know tried to do that but it didn't work because the chinese claimed they were chinese and spain um, Cuba was also was not was was also not accepting of that proposal of that claim. So his his mission there was pretty futile, and he understood that. Um, but nevertheless, he wrote about the 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 Chinese, and he wrote about the negative effects of Chinese and as and and Japanese also immigration would have. He wrote about the negative effects that Chinese and Japanese immigration would have in Brazil. And he published his works in Brazilian in Rio, you know, Carioca, which is from Rio, newspapers. So he was very much in conversation with people in Brazil. And again, showing the circulation of ideas, right? So he was saying that he just saw what happened in Cuba and he rejects and he urges the Brazilian public to reject that possibility for Brazil. Um, and and he, you can see in his works that he was very much invested in this idea of 
um, they, this kind of superiority of, you know, of a Portuguese and this European superiority. And, and it was very much embedded in his work. But he, his point of view also shifts in different works. And, and that's something that is interesting about him because he, he, his perspective changes and his literature is not consistent. He has different viewpoints. And, um, and Marshall de Jesse also does this. You know, they, they show these conflicting, ambiguous Viewpoints. You, it's very hard to pinpoint a, an exact position of them, but they they do this work of of showing these different instances, different viewpoints, and so if you look at different moments of his writing, he's showing these different um, uh, positions, you know, and sometimes he's writing from the perspective of this diplomatic poetics. It would. And sometimes he's writing from this more uh, literary orientalist depiction. But um, so that idea of diplomatic poetics was very important for me to help me think about the, these intersections between historical, political and aesthetic texts. Yeah, I see that tension um, being very productive. I, I suppose one more um, sort of diplomat author that I want to just flag for listeners, and perhaps you can speak um, a little bit about, is Luis Guimaraes Filo, um, uh, if I'm pronouncing that relatively accurately. Um, but his book, you write uh, about about uh, a book called, uh, and I'm loosely translating based on my understanding of Portuguese, Samurais and Mandarins, which was published in 1912. Uh, which was actually a collection of travel writing. Um, he had been uh, a diplomat, uh, eventually became the Brazilian ambassador to Madrid and to the Vatican. Um, but what I find interesting about this, because of you know some of the references we've made to uh, earlier in our conversation to um, uh, Japanese migration, is how somebody like uh, uh, Guimaraes Filo uh, looks at uh, portrayals of Japaneseness versus Chineseness, and how he. Uh, thinks about inverting existing or preconceived notions of Orientalism and and uh, sort of playing with uh, what people expect that they know about Japan and Japanese people versus China and Chinese people. Um, so in this particular case, um, can you can you talk a little bit about um, how China compares to Japan and what somebody like uh, Gimareish Filo is trying to do uh, through his diplomatic poetics uh, of these two countries in comparison? So one one of the things I found interesting between Guimarães Filho and Issa de Queiroz's writings about China and Japan is that they both do this rhetorical strategy of saying to their reader, all you know about the Orient is based on these fictional Orientalist writings, you know, and they 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 actually talking about Orientalism, this literary Orientalism that has created an imaginary of the Orient that dominates their readers' understanding of places like China and Japan. And so both of them, Asa Chikirois and Guimarães Filho, they're telling their reader this kind of, you know, what you know about China and Japan is all based on these literary works that have constructed an idea of this exotic, imagined, you know, nice, distant place where, you know, all of those kinds of stereotypes. But so Issa Chikirois then does this rhetorical shift, this strategy of saying, this is what you know, but actually, and then he goes into this sense, um, he begins this yellow peril discourse of actually you have to, you know, there's this fear, you know, he creates this other kind of fear that the Orientalist imaginary has this, has disguised what um, he then starts talking about as this Chinese labor, as Japanese imperialism, really, you know, he, he begins this uh, new kind of um racialization of the Chinese and Japanese in within yellow peril discourses. And so that uh, is a shift in his tone and in, in also in the historiography of, of racialization, there's this you know turn that he's doing. 
um, and Guimarães Filho, he does something similar. He says to his predominantly, you know, um, female reader, uh, upper middle class, he imagines she's sitting in her, you know, room and just reading these tales of the Orient and, and delighting in all of their kind of exotic, you know, descriptions. And he also says that it's very important to debunk that. So his mode of diplomatic poetics, he begins to debunk these Orientalist, Portuguese Orientalist depictions of China. And he specifically goes to earlier works, 16th century works of, for example, Fernão Menges, who wrote Peregrinações. Um, and he his tales of this, you know, Portuguese voyagers through throughout Asia, throughout places like Macau and Goa and all over. And and he says, actually those are all false when he goes because he goes to China and he says, there's this imaginary of China that I had doesn't exist, you know, and then he also does this work of debunking these Orientalist representations of of China. And there, instead, he, again, does the switch to more of this yellow peril discourse of the Chinese. You know, he, he uses the Boxer Rebellion as a way to paint the Chinese as this very rebellious, you know, peasant class. And, um, and, and he does that work. And so the, in, his, in his diplomatic poetics, he sees Japanese immigration as a good thing and so he does this um, turn from Chinese to advocating for Japanese immigration and saying um, the Japanese are um, they offer something Japanese immigration in his view is much more favorable um, although he does write about this rising Japanese empire, this powerful Japanese empire, and, you know, this, these different kinds of um, power dynamics there. And he, but he sees that as a positive thing that could be positive for Brazil. And so they're doing different things with their literature. They're, they're shifting ideas about the Chinese and the Japanese, but then they're creating new ideas, new represent, racial representations about them for different specific goals of whether it be migration, whether it be aligning with, um, you know, Japan as a superpower, et cetera. I think the, the point you made about how Gilmesh Filo uh, works with the Boxer um, Rebellion or the, or the Boxer Uprising um, is fascinating to me because just it, it sort of points to the, the way in which the Chinese just can't win, right? In in terms of in terms of representation, you know, if they're if they're workers, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of too passive. They'll overwhelm, you know, Brazil uh, as 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 uh, uh, these overly productive uh, workers. If they're too if they're if they're uh, taking up arms, then they're too aggressive, uh, and and they become a threat in terms of uh, how they might rebel and carry out similar attacks uh, in Brazil if they if they come to Brazil, and it just sort of captures perfectly this this problematic position uh, for uh, for for the Chinese um, in representation which I guess now um, we'll, we'll, we'll um, zoom forward to the 1930s and 1940s Brazil um, we're now in the period of, of World War II and this is the subject of the final chapter uh, of, of the book um, and the chapter's title is the yellow peril in Brazilian popular music so here we're also shifting again, to a different uh, a mode of, of cultural representation to, to musical forms. Um, and, and to me, this was a, a, a fascinating chapter because, again, of my own background in knowing what happens to U.S. Sinophobia and, and uh, anti-Chinese representations during the context of World War II, which turned dramatically positive from what they had been, you know, even just uh, uh, several decades before because of this alliance um, that... Uh, uh, is, is developed between China and the United States. Brazil is also, I understand, um, you know, part of that alliance, at least after 1942. Uh, but it, it seems, at least based on your analysis of popular music, that in terms of Chinese gender and sexuality again, but also in terms of Chinese economic competition, that the representations don't go through as dramatic of a shift from negative to positive. Is, would that be a fair representation or, or characterization? 
Absolutely. And going back to what you just said that, you know, there's this cultural kind of exclusion of the Chinese and you just can't win, right, in these representations. And again, there's this sense that, as you said, there is a shift to more positive view of the Chinese because of Brazil's alliance with the Allied powers in World War II. And here you also see a shift, whereas the Japanese immigrants, Japanese immigrants were previously seen as a good, um, you know, almost uh, like a good solution. There's uh, there's a shift there, and and it, it very much is aligned to the Japan's role with the Axis. And so there's that, you know, very clear shift. Um, however, what's interesting is that the Chinese, um, they're still not completely, the representations are not always positive. They're still economically in economic competition. They're still not trustworthy when it comes to economics. And this, um, so the, again, these ideas that the Chinese are not trustworthy, that Chinese are in economic competition, um, that the gender and sexuality, again, is repeated. You know, the Chinese masculinity and Chinese um, is, is emasculated. It's not trustworthy. You know, there's always these similar kinds of ideas about Chinese gender and sexuality that were present throughout in earlier constructions from the 19th century, and they continue through these songs. Um, but then there, there's, you know, there's, so again, there's this sense that there's a construction, this global construction of Chinese gender and sexuality, but then also another layer of the, how the Chinese get constructed within Brazilian culture and Brazilian understandings of gender and sexuality. And this very Brazilian figure of the mulata, which is a, a, a figure who comes you know, develops directly out of the violence of the plantation. The mulata is a mixed-race woman, hypersexualized, and it, it she signals the violence of plantation, you know, sexual violence from the plantation. But then she becomes this very, you know, erotic symbol and and um, a symbol of mixed race, of mestizaging, of mixed raceness. And so um, in gets appropriated in carnival, gets appropriated and re-signified. So this is also a fascinating figure that contains all of these different layers of history, you know, of this violent history of a re-signification and reclaiming of that history and, and taking back. Um, but, and so, so today it's not, you know, you in carnival, mulata is a, a stock figure of carnival. There's mulata and anyone can dance mulata as long as you can do, the samba moves, you know, you have to be highly trained. It's a very difficult role, but it's a role in carnival. So it's very embedded in Brazilian culture, Brazilian cultural heritage and identity, but it, but this figure carries that legacy. And so Chinese um, female sexuality and Japanese become, gain meaning according to this understanding. And it's, um, it's kind of this patriarchal, um, structure of the plantation that takes new form in the urban in, in urban gender right constructions of urban urban gender and you can still see how these ideas are there but they're reconfigured in these new spaces and new bodies I, I want to maybe end our discussion on a more recent note, because one of the most sort of striking uh, sections of, of this chapter on popular music is your discussion um, of a uh, pop singer who in 2004 in Brazil released a children's album um, and, and uh, the included in that album with a music video is an old uh, carnival marcha song from 1936, um, the title, which is Lig, 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 Lay, uh, written by Santiago Oswaldo and Paulo Barbosa. Uh, and apparently you write um, that in the music video, you know, at various points when she sings different lines, she actually, um, uh, you know, sort of pulls back her, her uh, eyes to make them look squinty. 
um, and slanted, which is uh, as, as uh, most of our listeners I think will know, is is uh, sort of a, a caricature uh, and often used uh, to to um, deride Chinese people. So how do you, I know you, you've been um, in, in Brazil recently uh, for field work, but um, probably for other reasons as well. How do these representations look today? Um, and, and, and what do you see? And, and, you know, is there any effort to push back uh, on, I mean, this is only, you know, a decade ago, uh, as recently as 2004. How do people respond to these images today, uh, especially given the, the rise of China in the world? Well, I I would say those images today, that kind of gesture is still very dominant. And um, recently there was a controversy that um, uh, a soap opera hired a white actor to play an Asian character, and they you know also did a kind of yellow face on the in the the actor and didn't think there was anything wrong with that. So there's this idea that. You know, it's a it's a mode of Brazilian Brazilian racism that is very much masked masked within the idea of racial democracy. So the idea of racial democracy is incredibly violent because then all of these very um, racial racially charged and racial racist gestures can can slip through and people can say oh i wasn't being racist you know there's i'm not racist but the gesture already happened the subjugation already happened through that gesture this assertion of a kind of dominance already happened through that gesture and you know even if you try to say that it, it wasn't intentional the act already happened so there's this constant sense of that's how you know Brazilian racism works. There's this negation that there's racism, and then there's this assertion of that racial dominance of a social dominance that's always told, you know, reiterated through these colonial racial I- ideologies and replicated again and again and again, and then an, a kind of denial of it. You know, there's this this pattern of how that happens, and here you see the same thing. You see this. Um, singer who is making the squinty eye gesture and it's for a children's show a children's program so most likely you know she's influencing young minds and they're going to think that gesture is normal and replicate it and so even though they're not conscious that they're doing this assertion they're nevertheless asserting a kind of um power dynamic and racial dominance again and again and again. And here's, you know, one example, but there's many, many other ones that happen in the society. And, and sometimes they're microaggressions and sometimes they're macro, you know, but it's a very much um, part of Brazilian racism to, to have this, these sorts of very racist gestures, but masked behind um, you know, other discourses of disguise that, oh, we're a racial democracy, we're all mixed race, we all have, you know, mixed race ancestry, different ancestors, but it's still undeniable that uh, a racial hierarchy exists. It's undeniable that there's a genocide of predominantly black men in this country. And so there are these, you know, very clear material and violent um, consequences that come out of these very micro and not so micro macro gestures. And we see how cultural production really is complicit with um, these dynamics of power and race. Well, on that note, thank you so much for writing uh, you know, a, an ambitious and rich book that shows the context, uh, uh, historical and cultural for these representations. You know, we've sort of gone from the, the 16th century to the early 20th century, and we've looked at everything from illustrations to poetry to novels to uh, vaudeville theater to, to popular music. Um, and I hope listeners will appreciate the richness of that, um, uh, of these different archives uh, of, of Chinese-ness and Chinese representation in Brazil. And I wonder if we could end by having you talk a little bit about what you're working on at the moment. I know you are speaking to us from, from Brazil. Um, do you have a project that you are currently working on? 
Yes, actually, I'm working on two projects right now that I'm very excited about. One has to do with um, a working group that I co-direct with my colleague Anupama Rao called Geographies of Injustice, where we study different kinds of housing inequality in different places around the world, like Mumbai, Rio de Janeiro, and we're um, you know, in Harlem. And so I've been working with a local museum here based in Hosinia, which is known often as the largest favela in Latin America. And so the work with the museum directors, um, they've been doing this beautiful memory and history project of mapping the history of Hosinia over the last hundred years through oral history, through photography, through songs, um, to, to show the, the rich layers of Brazilian history that are present in this space. And through these oral histories, we've come to see different histories of migration, of settlement. We've come to see how the drugs and arms trafficking business has affected this community, this space. And so by doing this, we're they're showing this much larger picture of Brazilian history that often gets invisibilized I would say purposely, purposefully, in order to you know continue these very kinds of um, violent economic trade, right? Because the arms trade, the drug trade, are incredibly lucrative businesses, and they often take place in these spaces, and they become authoritarian forms of dominating the lives of predominantly working class people who occupy, um, who live in these spaces. And, and, you know, and this is a huge population. We're talking about almost one in four people in Rio live in um, a self-housing situation, right, where they've built their own homes in, in land that um, they've claimed. And so that's one project I'm working on. And the other one I'm working on now is uh, about the persecution of African diasporic religions in Rio. So I've been studying these uh, earlier 20th century history of religious persecution, uh, predominantly directed at religions of African origin and um, looking at laws and cases of people who were affected by this. And so that's something that is just a new project I'm starting on. I'm also really excited about that. And, and so that's what I've been doing here these last few months. Well, that sounds like great projects, and and I hope um, that they they uh, more than anything else keep you keep you warm um, uh, during uh, as we enter uh, the the winter here in in uh, in North America. But uh, Anna, I want to say thank you for for sharing your time with us, uh, sharing your your ideas and your research with us on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm sure our listeners did as well. So thank you again. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation as well. That was my conversation with Anna Polina Lee, author of Mandarin Brazil, Race, Representation, and Memory, published in 2018 by Stanford University Press. My name is Ian Shin, and this is New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.